welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. But today we've really got a, a fabulous topic and two perfect speakers. But Ambassador Fraser, let's start with you. Um, you had worked during your time um, in government on kind of HIV/AIDS cooperation with Africa.、Um, learned a lot from that.、Uh, today, obviously, we have COVID-19 that has swept China, the United States, and now is sweeping Africa.、Um, what first question would be? Did we learn the lessons from that cooperation that you engaged in? And second, what's going on in terms of COVID? Nineteen、uh, and Africa today. Sure. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you and Deborah,、um, and to be participating in this forum、uh, this afternoon.、Uh, we learned some lessons, and certainly the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief (PEPFAR)、um, which addressed, as you said,、uh, HIV and AIDS, TB, and malaria issues.、Um, That infrastructure is still very much in place and is available now today in the response to COVID-19. And when I talk about that infrastructure, I'm talking about the fact that because it was designed as an emergency plan, there was a push initially to go into the big international NGOs、um, that had capacity on the ground to be able to get out,、um, especially antiretroviral. Uh, but also to work very、uh, closely on public education and information campaigns, and to do a lot of work in the preventive side, and whether it was be faithful or to use condoms. Now that infrastructure eventually transformed itself from moving just towards those big international NGOs into local community healthcare centers and training healthcare workers, and so that capacity that was built through PEPFAR. Remains today, and again, as I say, can be leveraged、um, to address COVID-19. And really, Africa does need that capacity because what we're finding、um, is the first COVID cases in Africa were found in about the mid mid February of、uh, this year,、um, and there was a sort of slow ramp up, but now it's really accelerating. And so today, there's about 315,000 cases. Um, in in Africa, and there are confirmed cases, and there's been about 8,400 deaths, and that's of yesterday.、Um, and so the pandemic started, so that in sort of the first、uh, 98 days there were 100,000 cases, and then in the next 19 days there was another 100,000 cases.、Um, and so you can see, and then in the last 10 days there's another 100,000 cases. And so really the acceleration is、um, significant. And most of that is in about ten of Africa's 54 countries,、um, and that's where the rise is being seen. Of those countries, you know, we're talking about South Africa that has 100,000 cases, Egypt, which has 57,000 cases, Nigeria, 21,000, Ghana, and Algeria would go on. And of the deaths, 70% of the deaths that are taking place of those 8,000 are in just five countries: Algeria, Egypt, Nigeria, South Africa, and Sudan. I shouldn't say they're just in nine, five countries. I should, see, I, sh- I should say that, you know, those are the five countries that are driving it with 70 percent 
of those deaths. Um, probably that has, that's related to comorbidity issues. Um, in Algeria and in Egypt, there's sort of chronic respiratory issues and kidney diseases. And in South Africa, there's the issues of HIV and AIDS in Southern Africa in general, and of course, TB. And so we're seeing an, a significant acceleration um, of the disease. Uh, the death toll is not as high as it is in many other parts of the world. Part of that is some of the favorable factors, particularly the demographics. Um, you know, 60% of Africa's population is under 25 years. And so I think that that probably is helping them. And also, they're behind in terms of their infection trajectory. And so when it was hitting Europe hard, uh, and then started in America in March, African leaders took notice and put in place a lot of the lockdown measures um, that would help to, you know, the social distancing, stay at home, you know, school closures, um, you know, closing off international travel and even regional travel and even within countries, sort of closing off the major capital cities, which is where most of the infection is taking place. And so that's really been quite helpful to, to in some ways, at least give them a chance to learn from other countries um, about how they should respond uh, to this pandemic. But of course, there's the, even though, as I said, PEPFAR helped build capacity, when you actually look at Africa, there are these disadvantages. Um, one of the biggest one is that there's only about 1.8 hospital beds um, per 1,000 people. The, the, the co comparison is with France, which is 5.98. And so the healthcare um, hospital capacity, um, if they should have this continued acceleration, um, isn't really there. You know, there's not many ventilators on the continent. And even if there were more ventilators, and United States and China have been pro pro promising and providing new ventilators, there aren't the people necessarily trained um, to be able to use those ventilators effectively to save lives. And so that's sort of the picture of uh, COVID-19 right now. The implications are of course significant on the economies. And I think Deborah can speak to this as well. Um, there's been a huge impact you know, um, on, on the projected GDP um, of, the, of the continent, like 2.5% of its annual GDP would go down. That's about $65 billion uh, lost. Um, there is, of course, the impact on productivity. You know, businesses are closing, small and medium businesses are, are closing, just like everywhere else in the world where this pandemic is hitting. Uh, capital inflows or investment inflows have slowed down significantly. Uh, commodity prices have dropped as well. And so, you know, there's this debate among African countries about, as it is globally, lives versus livelihood, you know, and they're starting to have slow exit strategies um, to try to get back to livelihoods at the exact same time that the uh, virus is taking, is, is being accelerating across the continent. And so we're in this very difficult situation, uh, and it does have a lot of implications for uh, stability on the continent. And Deborah, what are the Chinese doing? And what are the perceptions of the how the perceptions of the Chinese changing? Um, do they view China as the source and kind of the the original evil, as the Trump administration would probably say? 
Uh, the Chinese have made some pledges and they have been, um, as uh, Jen Dai suggested, they have been sending material to African countries. So it's um, uh, personal protective equipment, um, ventilators. Uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, made a pledge for low-income countries in general of uh, providing $2 billion in support for health initiatives. So that, um, that will be unrolled over the, the foreseeable future. They've also joined the G20, and I think this is a, maybe the most significant thing they've done uh, in light of the uh, severe economic um, repercussions and the fact that China's the largest bilateral creditor in Africa now. They've joined the G20 Debt Service Suspension Initiative. So this was announced back in April, right before the World Bank annual meetings. And it's um, an initiative that uh, suspends debt service. So that would be principal and interest payments for official creditors for eight months from May through the end of this year. This is something that's uh, a first step. Um, it's going to need to be extended almost certainly um, into the following year and maybe beyond. And what's the dollar value? What's the dollar value of that debt? Um, I'm not sure what the dollar value of all of that is. Um, it's uh, <laughs> try to look um, and see for the debt itself. I know from China, um, the debt for these low-income countries is about 102 billion. So the value of that debt service is going to be something like around 10 billion or so, maybe maybe less than that, 8 billion. I'm not sure of the exact number. Yeah. Um, but that that is according to the World Bank. They've recently published um, data on the World Bank's website about the debt that all the different creditors owe, the official creditors owe to um, governments and the publicly guaranteed debt. So thus we have actually precise figures. Although when we were when we were looking into that data, we, we recently wrote, we sliced and diced it to try to figure out um, what was going on in the aggregate. And we found that, that the World Bank had included Taiwan <laughs> in some of the, the countries, for example, Burkina Faso, which just recognized uh, Beijing in 2018, they had a, a chunk of debt that was attributed to China. So I guess, you know, the, the official policy is that Taiwan is part of China. So on the World Bank data website, it's, it's all combined there. <laughs> well. So I, I, let me say a little bit more, um, which is addressing some of the, both the health and the, the infrastructure impact that Chinese engagement has had over the recent past. Um, as part of the Forum on China-Africa cooperation, the Chinese have pledged um, and have constructed hospitals in uh, over 20 countries in Africa. So they've constructed them and equipped them. And I've visited some of these hospitals, for example, in Ethiopia, and these are kind of state of the art. I don't know about the ventilator situation, but they're pretty well equipped. So that's, it, it's a drop in the bucket for what, um, compared to what the need is in, in hospital beds, but it, it's, a, it's a health, it's a contribution. Um, and then there's the, the infrastructure, whereas uh, Ambassador Fraser pointed out that uh, the U.S. has been extremely supportive in the health sector, and we've done a great job from the, the PEPFAR program onward, combating HIV AIDS, malaria, and now this, some of this can be repurposed uh, for supporting um, the, the fight against uh, this virus and the treatment of it. And the Chinese, on the other hand, have been, when they um, support the health sector, they do it through buildings. But they've also been, um, a lot of Chinese funding has gone into things like um, expansion of electricity. 
and uh, roads, so uh, trying to get paved roads so that uh, roads can be used in all weather. And so we find in our data that about 64% uh, of all the Chinese loans in Africa are, are going into just electricity and roads. So that's, that'll help people uh, roll out whatever support um, is happening for the, the health measures. Having electricity and having roads to do that is, is really important part of it as well. And the Chinese provide the debt and then get an interest to get a security interest in the tolls on the roads or the, <clears throat> the electric company's um, utility payments? You know, a lot of um, countries in Africa have tried um, privatizing various aspects of their infrastructure. There's something called an independent power producer package. The World Bank has been promoting this as part of the public-private partnership effort. And so places like Zambia, for example, have been trying to get investment into their power sector. But very few um, companies from China or anywhere else have, uh, have actually bought into this, in part because so many African governments um, suppress the price for electricity, so it doesn't make it profitable to invest in that sector. And then in terms of roads, there have been some Chinese-funded um, uh, projects, uh, particularly in urban areas, that have been turned into toll roads, but there aren't very many. There's one in Uganda. There's now one in the Republic of Congo. And so um, the Republic of Congo is actually a really interesting example. This is one of the countries that has a, that's very highly indebted to China. And recently, the Chinese restructured uh, some of the um, largest loans there. And so they, they um, extended the repayment period. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. But what happened with one of those really large projects, which was a, a national highway that went from the coast all the way into the capitals, very long, went through a lot of uh, jungle. It was um, a new highway, so it was expensive, um, quite a, a major project. And then um, it was turned over to the government and then right away they, they couldn't maintain it. So it started to deteriorate because in these tropical conditions, you really have to uh, stay on top of maintenance of, of roads. And so um, the Chinese and a French company um, got together and proposed that this road be concession. So it's turned into a public-private partnership where they have a 30-year contract. The French company will run the tolls and the Chinese company will do the maintenance. So it's, actually a really good uh, sort of European-Chinese partnership here. And that's the kind of, the kind of model that we don't see very much happening in that uh, regard with the United States. Um, the French are actually in the, in the forefront of doing these Sino-Franco um, partnership models in Africa. So we see this in a lot of investment um, areas, particularly in ports. So most of the, most of the debt provided, though, you're saying that that's, that's kind of a it's a great example, but it's not how most of the debt uh, is provided. It's just government debt that funds a particular project. So, and that's how the overwhelming majority of the billions the Chinese have provided is. Well, is in terms of loans, yeah, the, the loans are basically there for different projects. So it's project finance. Um, some of this finance is secured um, we call it uh, secured with commodities or export commodities of some kind. So what's, um, this is not uh, that uncommon a model in risky countries for lenders to secure the loans. We see this happening with Glencore. We see this happening with other uh, international banks in places like Angola or, or South Sudan or the ROC, Chad. These loans are secured with um, 
revenues from exports, commodity exports, and they go into an escrow account. And so that provides a way to repay the loan. So the Chinese use this, we've seen it in 10 different African countries. So it's not across the whole continent. It has to be structured in a way that the, the government actually has ownership of those commodities so they can use it to repay the loans. And so many um, governments in Africa have, have privatized, like in Zambia, they privatize their copper mines. So they don't really have access to those revenues any longer to use to secure loans. So what the Chinese do, which is, is much less common, it's hardly anybody that uses this model except the Chinese for sovereign lending, they, um, they tie it up to the project. So rather than just sending money in and then you know, it's repaid um, through these uh, escrow accounts, the Chinese tie it to infrastructure projects of various kinds. So in this way, they're able to have a, a, a lower interest rate because they reduce the risk of non-payment by having the, it tied to a stream of revenues, future revenues. And in the event of default? Well, in the event of default, uh, what we're seeing that unfold right now. Um, so far, there have been no asset seizures. We haven't seen this once across the continent. There's been a lot of concern about it, but it hasn't unfolded that way. So what happens is that there are what the Chinese call friendly consultations, and then they've been lengthening the repayment period. And I think this goes along with a lot of Chinese thinking about how they use their capital. They're, um, they're pretty much, they have patient capital. So they're not, um, it's not the most important, they, they certainly want a return on their capital, but it's not the most important thing to get a return right away. So um, they're also concerned about the diplomatic uh, repercussions if they were to, to do what, what we've seen happening with, with some other lenders um, and even export credit agencies from other countries um, have done this. So the, what would happen and what can happen in the um, contracts that we've seen is that if these friendly consultations don't work, then there's an arbitration. So that's what would happen in any uh, project that, that goes bankrupt or that um, the country isn't paying. So there's arbitration and that can take place in the contracts that we've seen. Um, it, mostly the arbitration venue is Beijing, but it's not always. Sometimes it's France or the International Chamber of Commerce could be the venue, or it could be in Hong Kong, or it could be um, in London. So there are various places where that arbitration um, takes place. And then again, we haven't seen this ever happen. We've never even seen any arbitration happening with these sovereign contracts. Um, but if there were um, a judgment against the borrower, then the lender could try to enforce that judgment, in which case they could try to um, attach assets, which would usually have to be located outside of the country. So Argentina, for example, um, when they went bankrupt, the international lenders in the bond market um, that had lent to Argentina, they tried to attach Argentinian commercial assets in different countries. Um, so this kind of thing is a long drawn out process, which uh, very rarely leads to much success for the, for the lender. It's really not a very, if you're interested in doing investment in African assets, uh, loaning to own is really not the way to go about it. It's a complicated, uh, fraught, um, politically, a uh, very um, problematic way to do it. And uh, the Chinese are also investing. So they're, they're investing in, in things like mines and, and ports and other things. They don't need to do it in some surreptitious way to go you know, around behind and, and do a debt trap in order to, to do their investments. Where does the debt trap diplomacy that our current secretary is so fond of 
talking about fit into this? That doesn't sound like dead trap diplomacy to me. Uh, Ambassador Frazier, do you want to? Well, no, I think Deborah's the expert on this. I'll, I'll let her continue. I'll come back to the uh, comparison of the U.S. and Yes, because I was going to then go on. I'm asking that and then go on. How yeah. does the U.S., how is the U.S. looking at this? But go ahead, Deborah. Mm. What should we be doing? Well, Steve, uh, let me just give a little advertisement for an event that we're having tomorrow at, at SICE, at the China Africa Research Initiative. We're talking uh, about this exact topic and we'll be able to, to spend a, a lot longer talking about it. And we have there, um, as one of our speakers, uh, not, a China, not a, an Africa expert, but a China expert who has done a lot of field research on the um, Hamantota port in Sri Lanka. And so this is Meg Rithwire from Harvard Business School. And so I think she'll be walking us through why um, she doesn't think this is, uh, this is the, the poster child for asset seizure um, or dead trap diplomacy. Um, so it's, it's going to be a, a critique of that, um, that story or that narrative about what China did in Sri Lanka. But that is where all of this comes from because it's widely believed that um, China seized this port when uh, Sri Lanka went into default. But, Sri Lanka never went into default. Uh, China didn't seize the port. It was, I think it's best described as um, politically fraught because it happened after an election. And this was a pet project of the former president. So the, the new government coming in saw it as a white elephant and maybe it was, uh, and they really wanted to get rid of it. So they asked the Chinese to, um, and there were, of course, there were five different loans that had funded this project. So they asked the Chinese to restructure the loans or to write them down or provide a different um, payment structure. And the Chinese said, no, that's not, you know, the, these, um, because most of the loans were already at 2%. And so they said, well, if you want, uh, we could uh, bring in a Chinese company. So the Sri Lankan government, that was the choice. They could either, they didn't actually have a choice to, they could pay the loan um, or at, at the current, at the rates that they had, or they could get a Sri Lankan or a Chinese company to come in and provide equity capital. And so that they were, um, Sri Lanka at that point was actually facing very large um, loan repayments, which mainly were to bondholders. So not the Chinese governments. The Chinese debt was about 10% of the total and 90% was to other, um, other creditors. And so they privatized this about 70% of that port. Um, and they got in an infusion of, foreign, of capital coming from the Chinese company that, that ended up running that, um, partnering with them on that privatization. So, so it, this also was characterized as a debt equity swap. But what happened is that the Sri Lankan government kept that debt. They, it wasn't like it was written off. So they got all this foreign exchange coming in for the investment. Um, they still owe those loans. So. Um, that they were able to use that for an exchange to do some um, of the more urgent debt repayments and also they used it for their budget. And now all those loans are still there. So it's a, it's a more complicated story. It's a, you know, a short way of saying it, but, but it, there really isn't truth to it being an asset seizure or a, a default situation or a debt equity swap. So I think it's fair to say our government is not characterizing it entirely accurately. Mm, I think that's right. I think it's um, the question about are some of these projects that the Chinese are funding white elephants or are they going to be able to make enough money to um, repay their loans? This is a very uh, uh, good question to ask and I think we're going to find that in a lot of cases the answer is going to be no. And I think this what this um, this 
uh, highlight some of the weaknesses in how the Chinese do development finance. Um, they're not nearly as strict as um, the World Bank. They, this is their first big effort um, out uh, providing big loans and big credits to projects. And they're making a lot of the mistakes that um, the World Bank and other creditors made back in the 70s. They're funding a lot of these big infrastructure projects that may not be able to pay their way. And, and this is kind of what happens in China too. If we look at uh, the Chinese model of, of project finance in China is very much debt driven. So there's a lot of borrowing. We've uh, heard about the debt bomb that's um, sitting waiting to explode in China itself because a lot of uh, the states and the other and, and towns and, and companies have borrowed a lot. So it's actually an Asian model. The Japanese and the, the Koreans, they, their economies operate much more on debt than on equity um, also. And so the Chinese have looked at um, projects and they've tried to, they've tried to um, do their, their appraisal is much more, what can this particular project in Africa, for example, what can this project contribute to development? So if you look at a project like the standard gauge railway, it may not be able ever to make enough revenues to repay a loan. Um, and that's probably, uh, and, and that's why the, the whole financial structure for the standard gauge railway in Kenya also has a, a, an extra component, which is a 1.5% levy on all the imports coming into Kenya. And that money is supposed to back up the revenues in order to repay the loan. And this goes along with the, the idea that um, even if uh, public investment is not, if, if it can't earn enough revenues from the actual, um, the, the revenues for the train or for an electricity project or something like that, that there should be another way to still make these um, infrastructure investments uh, that governments want to do in Africa to make them uh, so that they can actually pay for themselves or they can be repaid, those loans can be repaid. So these are, um, I think in some ways that, that uh, the railway loan was a creative way to do this. We don't expect a lot of public infrastructure uh, in Europe or in America to actually pay for itself. That's why Amtrak isn't really a profitable uh, venture here. So we, it's, it gets supported in various ways. Uh, and in Europe, the, the rail system, the roads, it's not like we have toll roads everywhere. These are supported through revenues of other kinds. And so that's what Kenya's done. It's taxed its imports in order to provide for that, um, what they saw as an important piece of public infrastructure. Others might see it as a white elephant. I know the truckers in Kenya are particularly incensed because part of the deal there was to require truckers, uh, some portion of the um, cargo coming into the port in Kenya is required to be transported on the train to give it enough um, uh, business so that it can earn enough revenues to help repay those loans. Hmm. Well, yeah, just I just was going to say that it, you know it might also be considered a corrupt elephant, if not a white elephant, um, because you know the question of the pricing, you know, and how much really uh, those contracts should cost, and how much kickback is involved in those contracts is uh, one of the problems of why they can't make economic means um, because they're way overpriced uh, in the first place, um, and often that's because of corruption. But I also want to say that I think that China gets a lot of political capital out of the engagement on these big infrastructure projects as well. You know, because it is a partnership, it's, it's, it's framed in the terms of a partnership with African countries about what they are, what they are seeing as their priorities, which is the infrastructure uh, development play. And so I think that um, a, a country 
like uh, China, which has a long perspective, is not just looking at the specific economic return of any particular project, but the bigger political um, and global uh, play that they're making. And just on that point back, just going right back to COVID, just a little bit about how China's responding and how it compares with the United States. China at the uh, 73rd uh, World Health Assembly, right, at the, at the WHO, stood up there and uh, announced $2 billion over two years um, to address uh, COVID at the same time that the United States was in a frontal attack against the, uh, the uh, WHO's Director General Tedros, right, and pulling its money back. That's a big, huge um, play uh, and support for China in terms of a soft power play. China with the, uh, as Deborah mentioned at the Extraordinary China-Africa Summit on solidarity against COVID-19. Also, again, you know, working with African countries in the context of the FOCAC, their, their forum on cooperation and Af China-Africa cooperation, you know, announced that as soon as there is a COVID vaccination, it has to be a public good, you know, and African countries will be first in line to get that uh, vaccine. Uh, whereas, you know, the United States has had nothing to say about that and our industry has had nothing to say about that. And so I think there, you know, China has also announced that that same uh, Xi Jinping announced that uh, they're going to speed up the building uh, infrastructure again of Africa CDC, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're really showing a degree of sensitivity uh, to Africa's priorities. Um, and they're playing the solidarity uh, hand extremely well at the time at a time when the United States seems to be incoherent um, in its approach uh, and incoherent in its messaging. Now, on the sort of more pernicious side, I know that um, China does have uh, experts embedded within Africa CDC, um, smart play, uh, but at the same time, they are holding up American companies that have, are manufacturing testing kits and uh, PPE, you know, uh, personal protective equipment that needs to ship out of China. They're actually delaying those shipments into Africa uh, and stopping those shipments at the same time that their uh, embassy officials are going into the African countries who are complaining, saying we have alternative products for you, right? We can sell you our testing kits. We can sell you our um, you know, PPE, we can sell you, or not sell you, give you, sell you, whatever, our masks. Um, and so they're actually blocking uh, our private sector, um, our private sector industry in, in, in a time of pandemic when there's more need than enough, right? There's, there's tremendous demand uh, for this, uh, this material. And so, you know, big solidarity play, right messaging, they're building that African coalition that will help them in global forms. Um, but at the same time, they're playing in some ways a very dirty game as far as I'm, I consider it a very dirty game in terms of uh, pushing their uh, manufacturers, push, pushing their products and blocking American products at this time. They're blocking American products from getting into Africa? Yes, coming from China. Because, you know, we put all of our supply chain in China. I see. So, if it, yeah, so they don't allow the export of it. Exactly. Is it working? What's the perception now in Africa? Is it shifting to where a lot of the countries are saying, 
well, the Chinese come and they build us infrastructure. That's kind of what we need. Are, are we, is the United States building any infrastructure in Africa these days? I, I mean, uh, I'll let Deborah answer, but yes, yes, we are, but not on the scale. I mean, the scale that China is uh, engaged across all, all areas um, is way beyond uh, pretty much the United States. And of course, many of these uh, infrastructure companies in China are state-owned companies right with access to all the financing as well whereas ours are typically privately owned companies um and you know they look to our agencies like opec and xm bank and others to try to assist them in their efforts in africa but it's not on the level and with the coherence that i think china has moved into africa but i think african countries um you particularly right now you have Cyril ramaphosa who is the chairperson of the africa union uh, and he's also, South Africa is also one of the BRICS countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and, and South Africa. And so that relationship, I think, under his leadership of the AU has become even tighter um, than under previous, um, you know, uh, under previous leadership on the continent. Let me put it that way. Tighter with China. Yes, tighter with China, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, so, you know, and, you know, the United States at the same time doesn't have coherence, right? So our Africa policy does not seem strategic. It does not seem coherent. It's primarily built on the basis of previous administrations, you know, the, to, the, to the Trump administration's credit, they didn't really get rid of past programs. Um, and they've added a new program, Prosper Africa, and they renamed OPEC, the Development Finance Corporation. So they've made some good noises, but there's not much to show for that at the same time that they very publicly slash the uh, official development assistance uh, budgets for USAID um, and, you know, call African countries names and president hasn't actually not, hasn't visited uh, Africa um, in these four years that he's been president. And that hasn't happened in a very long time. Every U.S. president for the last three or four administrations have been to Africa, um, you know, in their first, their first term, or at least the last two or three um, have been. Before asking Deborah to answer that question also, let me just have one follow-up. You're now CEO of 50 Ventures, which helps foreign companies kind of navigate investing in Africa. Is the private sector from the United States playing a role that is material and relevant to kind of building American uh, prestige and relationships with Africa? No, I don't think the private sector is, is, is playing that role. The private sector is very much involved in Africa, um, certainly. Uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, Coca-Cola there, <laughs> you know, it's ubiquitous across Africa. You know, you have um, some of our car companies there. You have our, you know, man, you know, food, food, Matt uh, Kellogg and others are in South Africa, for example. And so definitely you have American companies, um, our, our telcos, we have our, uh, you know, our technology companies, our healthcare companies, they're all definitely in Africa. Uh, mostly though, they're there looking for market. Um, and they're not really hearing Africa when Africa says what we want is manufacturing. Why are you doing all the manufacturing in China or in Asia and you're not putting any manufacturing in Africa? We need jobs in Africa. You know, help build factories 
on this continent. Let us do the assembly. Let us, and American companies are like, it's not economically efficient and American corporates are based on quarterly reports. So they can't have that long perspective about, you know, we're building a partnership and eventually it will turn to profit. The profit has to come today, tomorrow, this quarter. Um, they're held accountable to their shareholders. So they can't really play that same role that I think Chinese owned companies um, can be part of a more coordinated strategy. Although my experience in Kenya with Chinese companies that they're competing against each other all day and they are state owned companies <laughs> and they're competing against each other <laughs> quite fiercely. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, companies are companies. <laughs> yeah, people lose sight of that. It's a very important point. Deborah. Well, it's, it's good they're competing. Yes, uh, it's it much better to have them competing than to have the non non competition because then sure. you get that kind of um, or or colluding, uh, because corruption, as Jindai uh, pointed out, this really really is an issue um, with Chinese project finance. There's much less. Um, they don't have, well, they have a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, but it doesn't seem to have any teeth. So they have made um, overseas corruption a crime, just as we have in America. Uh, but we haven't ever seen uh, a company prosecuted under this, and it's a fairly recent development. So we're still waiting to see how that unfolds. Um, but let me address briefly uh, investment, the differences in investment. Uh, I believe the U.S. still has a larger stock of investment in Africa than China does. Um, but what we're seeing over the last few years, and I was just looking at the data right now, but in about 2013-2014, um, U.S. Um, investment in Africa started to go down, and now it's actually been back and forth in negative territory, which means that, that we're disinvesting, our capital is flowing or fleeing, U.S. capital is fleeing Africa. So that's, it's a really unfortunate picture. Um, so that even though there is some investment going in, there's a lot more that's uh, going out in the last few years. And I doubt that uh, the current that COVID-19 is, is going to improve that picture there. Um, one of the areas that the Chinese um, companies have been investing in is manufacturing. And uh, we've recently completed a research project on this and we saw hundreds of, of Chinese companies doing manufacturing in Ethiopia, for example. They're finding that a very attractive location. Even in Kenya, we saw quite a few Chinese manufacturers. Um, we also looked in Tanzania, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, and there were Chinese manufacturers um, in significant numbers in all of these countries. And one of the things that, that they're particularly interested in, which is, was interesting to me to see this, they're interested in doing what we used to call import substitution, industrialization, but without the kinds of um, bad policies that, that accompanied that in the past. So they're actually making in African countries the kinds of things that used to be imported in. So in the plastics industry or in, in um, other, other areas, the textiles uh, industry and building materials. So they're trying to produce in Africa what they used to produce in China. So some of the factories are moving into Africa. So in that sense, they are substituting for those imports that used to come from China by producing them locally. And we find that over 90% of all of the people working in these factories, sometimes up to 97% are African. Um, so that's that's a good thing for jobs, although the jobs may not be the best jobs available. They're, they're jobs that, that have um, uh, some potential also for, for learning. So that's that's been a positive thing um, about Chinese investment. And that's not something 
that we really see is, as uh, Ambassador Fraser said, we don't really see this happening with US companies, not in the manufacturing um, sector yet. So um, one other thing, which is just uh, on Chinese, on the construction industry, um, this, this actually is a strategic sector for the Chinese. Africa provides, uh, for the whole continent, is 30% of Chinese overseas contracting business. So that's, that's quite a bit. So all of those companies that are being supported by the China Exim Bank, um, they're about roughly $10 billion or so a year of loans could be going in to support infrastructure projects of various kinds. But the business these companies are getting is about $50 billion a year. So there's about 40 billion that they're just getting um, through various, um, they're doing World Bank projects, African Development uh, Bank projects. Just in Nigeria, they do, they do projects for the government. They just bid on, on contracts and uh, the Nigerian government pays them directly out of its uh, own revenues. So that's a, it's a very big business. And when you look at the top, uh, like 100 top uh, engineering firms now worldwide, there aren't very many American companies in there. We've, it's a sector that we've kind of left. You know, we have Bechtel and, and uh, a few others in there, but the Chinese have been coming up, uh, coming up through the decades, and now they're really populating a lot of those top 100 companies. And the other ones are coming from places like Korea and Turkey, uh, Brazil. So we see a lot of developing countries in that construction business. And, and the, really, it's, it's kind of a uh, a bifurcation now where we're um, US companies and some of the European firms are in the higher end sort of management of these things or the oversight engineering consulting engineering but actually getting down there and doing all the building we've become too expensive any any US China cooperation in Africa in terms of constructing you know some of the higher ends of construction need US support or basically we're not seeing it there's very little there's been, um, I think in South Africa, and I don't know all the details of this, but I think um, there was some uh, maybe parallel cooperation. I think GE might have supplied some trains to some of the South African railway system, and the Chinese also supplied some funding into that. I don't know all the details of that. Um, we've seen some other examples where there have been um, cooperation has been discussed, um, but not, there aren't very many instances where it's, it's come to fruition. Um, My I've argument seen a lot more from France, as I mentioned earlier, a lot more cooperation. What I've told the Chinese about BRI is one great way to get American support for BRI is make sure American companies are involved in those projects. Mm -hmm. That if there are American jobs being created by BRI investments or American financial institutions providing some of the debt, that will make Americans think much more positively towards the activity, as opposed to now when it's all viewed, uh, viewed negatively. Any evidence that the Trump's tariffs have moved Chinese production to Africa? Um, it's a little hard to, uh, to actually find evidence of that because you know, all of the data lags. So, you know, the, the data we would be seeing would be like 20, 2018. So there's not even for 2019. And then um, in terms of- You would of have examples, heard from people saying, oh, yeah. we moved, you know, we used to have a garment factory in, 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 you know, in Guangzhou and we've now moved it to somewhere in Africa. It would I'm be anecdotal, it wouldn't be data. Yeah, I'm seeing more of uh, those kinds of anecdotes for Asia still, Vietnam and other places in Asia. Ambassador Fraser, you hear anything about that kind of activity? No, I haven't. Um, 
So what should the U.S., I mean, the, the portrayal we're hearing is, you know, infrastructure investment, hey, you know, we want Africa to develop. We want Africa to develop for a lot of political reasons and for business reasons. You know, as Ambassador Fraser said, we will sell more Coca-Cola if Africans are, are, are or more Dasani water, um, if Africa is doing better as a continent. So the question really is, should we be countering this China strategy? Should we be complementing this China strategy? What should we be doing? Either of you. <laughs> I'll start, I'll just jump in and maybe we'll have a dialogue about that because um, I personally think that we spent too much time as an administration uh, talking about our Africa policy in terms of China. Mm -hmm. um, it's as if we're only interested in Africa because China is making such big moves on the continent. And I think that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, we really have a very long and deep relationship with the African continent. Um, and we should be building off of our own interests, um, not so worried about what China is doing. Uh, and so, you know, this, this, it's almost as if we're trying to have a cold war in, 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 in Africa, like we did against the, the Russians, wherever the Russians are, we have to try to block them, you know, stop them, whatever. It doesn't make any sense today. And quite frankly, there's no tolerance among African leaders for that because they see the benefits that uh, engaging with the United States can have for them and what the, the engagement with China can have for them. The, the, the issue here in terms of the competition is that we've retreated. It's not that, it's, you know, China's moved forward and we've retreated. Um, and, uh, and that's been our uh, policy. You know, now the people who are working Africa policy, now I'm talking about the ambassadors in countries, I'm talking about the assistant secretary, I'm talking about the person for Africa at the State Department, the person at the NSC. They are trying their best to keep a very strong, forward-leaning, positive and constructive relationship with the continent. And so at the level of the experts, um, I don't think there's really any difference between the past administrations and the current administration. Uh, the, the challenge has been the focus of the leadership at the highest level. And I always, what I found when I was in the Bush administration, and even to some degree in the Clinton administration, is that the, the cabinet secretaries follow the lead of the president. The signals that the president give, that that's what the cabinet secretaries tend to devote their time to and their effort. So when President Bush showed a huge interest in Africa, all of a sudden, every cabinet secretary had to travel to Africa. Every cabinet secretary needed to show the president what they're doing on Africa. If the president doesn't send that signal, uh, then the attention at the highest levels simply doesn't go there. And so I think that um, the United States has, I mean, we just got into trouble again, again, wrong signals, because they decided to try to cut the malaria initiative, the presidential malaria initiative to uh, put the money into COVID response. Well, more people are dying of malaria in Africa today than they are of COVID. Now, that may not be the case in the future. This is a very deadly virus. I'm not downplaying it in any way. But instead of additive, <laughs> right, recognizing that malaria is an issue and we're going to also do something on COVID, they're taking money away from COVID, which had a huge backlash. 
um, on the continent. And so if we could just um, really, I mean, almost 70 to 75% of our assistance, our official development assistance had gone into the health area. So there's no country that would be better positioned to support Africa during this COVID response than the United States. But the United States has just missed the opportunity over and over and over again. You know, uh, most, uh, I think most directly uh, in terms of blaming Tedros, um, who was Africa's candidate to become the head of the WHO, it's the first African to lead that organization. And so the direct attack against him, not just the institution, but against him, again, didn't go down well uh, across the continent. And so I think that we have a very strong uh, history with Africa. I don't think that it's irreparably damaged. I think that it, it's easily fixed. African leaders are still, for the most part, reaching towards the United States, not reaching against it, but they're also reaching towards China. And they don't see it as any kind of a trade-off. They don't see one as meaning that they're in one camp versus another camp. They don't see themselves in any camp other than their own camp. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna engage with partners who can support the agendas that they see as a priority for their people. Very interesting. Deborah. Yeah, uh, let me follow up on that um, by just emphasizing that when public opinion polls um, ask Africans in a number of different countries about um, the countries that they like, especially when they ask them about the United States and they ask them about China, um, they like both. You know, they don't want to have to choose. And it varies country by country. But in general, they admire our model, our development model. They admire our democracy, although I think it <laughs> might be some questions about that in recent years. Um, but they also, they admire China's uh, economic, how they've lifted so many people out of poverty and they've done it so quickly. So they admire their, admire their economic um, prowess and they want to learn from both of us. And so they don't want to have to choose and they don't want to um, have a new Cold War because they remember that when the, the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled and they, they've already experienced that. They certainly don't want to be in that situation again. One of the things that we can learn from China is that China's made um, the continent and, and each individual African country diplomatic priorities. Um, it's known amongst people who study China-Africa that every single year since 1990, the Chinese Minister of Foreign Affairs goes to Africa on his first visit of the year in January. And so he goes to at least three countries and it's a big um, splash. You know, he has meetings and, and takes a delegations of different people. That's not something that you, you've seen our Secretary of State doing ever. I mean, it's rare even for them to, to visit Africa, but to do it yearly, year after year after year. So that's something that gets noticed. Um, and it, it's um, this, and then the, so diplomatic um, ties and, and Africa as a political partner for the Chinese is important. And that's how they show it. And there's a lot of respect um, that's shown to African leaders of all different varieties um, by, by Chinese leaders. And then uh, they also show Africa that they mean something to them economically, so as business partners. And they have a lot of instruments to make that happen. So their Minister of Commerce is taking delegations there all the time, um, trying to get them familiar, trying to get them invest, trying to show them that even in risky environments, they can do uh, business successfully. 
So that kind of uh, just relentless fostering, and it goes from Beijing down to the, all the provinces. So the provinces are taking delegations there, and the provincial banks are supporting projects. So it's just a kind of a uh, all um, parts of government there uh, combined in this um, model of, of promoting uh, the diplomatic ties and the economic ties. And, and that's something that we really don't see um, happening in Washington. Not anymore. <laughs> the, um, I, I have to get to audience questions because I see we're getting a buildup of it and I will very shortly, I promise. The, um, but two questions. Um, one is there was, in April, there was a lot of publicity about um, uh, when, when uh, Guangzhou was in lockdown. There was a lot of publicity about um, China, uh, Chinese mistreating uh, African residents, African students and others doing business. Did that, I don't need you to go into the, well, maybe you want to go into the facts or not. Did that get traction in Africa? Did that change people's, Africans' perceptions of China? Or was that baked into the cake already? It's a great question. Um, it definitely was uh, noticed in, in Africa and it got some um, official, you know, uh, presidential rebuke China got about how they were treating their people. Um, but your point about it being baked in is actually also true because, um, and I don't want to overgeneralize, uh, but you know, there's many, 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 many Africa, many, many, many Chinese who are now living in Africa, right? I mean, many. And so, African people have been interacting with Chinese uh, quite a lot, both favorably and uh, not favorably. You know, um, you know, there was a time when many of these Chinese infrastructure projects just had Chinese workers. That's changed mainly because African governments said that's unacceptable. Uh, and so they, many of the sites have a lot of uh, Africans working, but the managers continue to be Chinese. Um, and so you do hear in the newspaper now and then that there's some type of, um, you know, uh, abuse that some Chinese have did to, to their workers, you know, whether in a restaurant or on a construction site. I mean, that plays in the newspapers. And so in some ways, yes, it is, it is baked in, you know, there's, um, you know, there's, you know, these are just, again, uh, general statements. Now I'm talking mainly because I live in Kenya and, uh, or I spend, I live in Kenya really. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, you hear the discussions about being cheated by some trader who's, you know, and Chinese trying to actually move into the trader spots. So the Juakali, uh, as they call it, you know, the people who work under the sun are competing against uh, Chinese products and Chinese actual sellers. And so I think it's a comp, it's a, it's a complex relationship. Uh, you could have the same probably argument about some American coming there and being abusive and saying nasty things um, to African workers, et cetera. So it's, I'm not trying to say that it's a blanket, um, but definitely those incidents got um, uh, rebuked from the presidential level and would not be a surprise um, at the citizen level. And yeah, you can go on in, Deborah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It was, it was, um, kind of astonishing in a way to see the, um, the I mean, blowback isn't even a, a strong enough word, but the, the level of concern that was raised um, by the videos of the mistreatment of, of Africans 
in uh, Guangzhou and other parts of China uh, as a result of the COVID-19. So these um, now with social media and videos being able to be played um, instantly around the world, um, th that kind of, it, it arouses a lot of um, concern. And, um, and this was the first time, I think, that we've seen it at the level of uh, African leadership to be really, um, you had ambassadors and, and others um, also recording their uh, concern and their, their messages about how unacceptable this behavior was. I, I think it's, um, it's a kind of deeply sad and ironic that in the United States, right, not too long after this, this um, these racist uh, happenings in Guangzhou, then we have uh, faced our own uh, problems with racism yet once again. And so it's uh, the whole situation, it's sad in China and it's sad in the United States. And I think Africans realize this. Well said, well said. Um, for fear of having an audience rebellion. I have other questions, but let me get to the audience questions from uh, General Slash Ambassador Carl Eikenberry. The Jack Ma Foundation has been very active in Africa in recent years, and since February has been donating a significant amount of medical supplies in response to the coronavirus pandemic. How is the foundation viewed within Africa? Does it operate as a truly independent NGO? Deborah, you wanna take a crack at that one? <laughs> I understand since I live here in Washington, you're never supposed to say, I don't know, <laughs> in these public events. Um, I, I don't think we really have any evidence about how, um, how Jack Ma's viewed. Now I tend to, when I ask questions about how is something viewed, I always go to the polling data. And so as far as I know, we, we don't know. And you can ask your taxi driver the next time I'm there, I'll, I'll <laughs> or anecdotally to see. Um, but I'm sure that in, in general, it's appreciated. You know, Jack, Jack Ma is a, a billionaire. He's, the fact that he's coming or that he's sending, um, that he's engaged in Africa, I think would be of interest to people and, and they would appreciate that. And whether or not the foundation is seen as independent, I think when it comes to China, there are always questions about you know what's independent, what's private, what isn't. Uh, I don't know the details about Jack Ma's foundation, um, so and I don't know if there's anything that Jundai has looked into, but probably there there are people um, maybe even you know more about Jack Ma and his foundation than than we do, Steve. What I can say about it is that um, definitely the, you know, he was, his was one of the first big donations. Um, I think that was in March sometime, uh, early March or mid-March or sometime around that. And it, it got a lot of attention and it went into the AU, to the CDC. And they, of course, that's Addis Ethiopian Airlines sent it out to different African countries. Um, and so it was, it was sort of a wide distribution and it was, I think it was seen as very favorable. Uh, I don't know to the degree that it's coordinated with the Chinese government, but it reflects well on the Chinese government, uh, for sure. Just like the U.S. government, when it tries to talk about how much, you know, America's doing in Africa, it always wants to talk about what how much spending uh, our, or investment our companies are doing. So the private sector, they try to build in the private sector numbers and they also try to build in the philanthropic numbers, right? And the NGO numbers. And they, they're saying, well, no, Americans are really, really engaged here. It's not just official 
assistance. It's look at what our foundations are doing and look at what our NGOs are doing and look at what our companies are doing. And so uh, even if there's not, I don't know, I, I actually don't know whether uh, the Jack Ma Foundation is, has any you know, deep ties with the Chinese government. But I do know that governments will leverage uh, what their citizens are doing if they're doing it in a big, large way to try to reflect back positively on uh, that bilateral relationship. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, they made a huge contribution to the United States also in terms of donations of PPE that arrived in New York um, and were thanked by the governor of the state of New York at a time when we were very short PPE. Um, Helena Kalenda from the Luce Foundation, would you be able to comment on whether the Chinese approaches being used in Africa differ in any way from those used in Latin America and Southeast Asia? That's a Deborah question. Um, yeah, I think um, the approach in Latin America has been um, in, in some ways the diplomatic angle, except for Central America, where there's still been this, uh, and in the Caribbean, there's this dollar diplomacy uh, battle with Taiwan going on still. So some of the countries there still recognize, or up until very recently, have recognized um, Taiwan as China, uh, and they don't have diplomatic ties with Beijing. So that, that sort of issue is different. In, in Africa now, we've got just one country uh, Swaziland or Eswatini, what is it called now, Jendai? Eswatini. Eswatini, that's what I thought. Um, so that is the only country that recognizes Taiwan. So in, and otherwise I see a lot of, um, there, there's, there's been a lag in terms of the relationship with Latin America in terms of Chinese um, migration, in terms of, of uh, small businesses being set up there. Um, and China Exim Bank is not nearly as active uh, in Latin America as it is in Africa. So it's much more uh, China Development Bank, which means that this is, these are commercial relationships and it doesn't have as much of the subsidized aspect. So um, those things are, are different. Um, and some countries like Colombia, we don't see, I don't think there isn't any Chinese lending uh, in Colombia, at least not uh, from, from Exim Bank, and I don't think from CDB either. So, um, and in, in Southeast Asia, there's, I think the politics is, is very different because China is such a, a looming presence there. You know, it's up above, uh, kind of hovering there as this giant neighbor um, and very dominating in terms of uh, small countries like Laos and Cambodia. So they're very much, um, they're part of this BRI. They've taken out big loans. Laos is one of the biggest, uh, proportionately biggest borrowers. Um, and they think they've kind of, uh, feel as though they don't really have much choice but to hitch their wagons to the Chinese, uh, to the Belt and Road Initiative. And then there's, but there've been also the ability to um, speak back. So uh, in Malaysia, for example, when Mahathir uh, came back in as the uh, prime minister, he was very uh, harsh in his critique of some of the Chinese projects there and, and renegotiated them. So there's some ability also to, to speak truth to power uh, by these leaders in, in Southeast Asia, which is, is good. It's not just uh, all you know, China dominating. One of the things that I've noticed is that um, in Southeast Asia, we had an earlier era of Japan going out and going global. And, and much of uh, the way China has been engaging has been following that roadmap. So for example, you see all of these um, 
economic zones that the Japanese built in earlier years. They were very involved in Penang. They were very involved in the Eastern seaboard in Thailand. Um, and the Chinese have sort of picked up with this idea of, ah, you build these economic um, clusters, these, these zones outside, and then you move your companies in there. So you, you provide the infrastructure, the ports, the railroads, roads, things that you need to make all of this uh, package happen. So Japan really did that model well. And uh, the Chinese are trying to replicate that, not just in Southeast Asia, where a lot of it's already done. Um, they are doing it in Vietnam um, quite, quite actively. Uh, but also in Africa. So we see a lot of that mo model of is sort of a ports and, and zones, um, that idea of being um, rolled out across the continent in Africa. Yeah. Um, Earl Carr says, exceptional event, exclamation points. Thanks, Earl. Uh, how do various countries in Africa perceive the BRI now in comparison to the past? I gather that the African Union has become more skillful in negotiating with China on BRI projects and requiring Chinese labor not to be used, or at least less of it to be used. Is this perception accurate? I guess um, I don't know that the African Union is doing that much uh, direct negotiation. It's pretty much country by country. So these BRI projects, it's also, I, I don't actually find the BRI to be very useful in Africa because so many countries that have joined uh, BRI only did it um, after the big uh, FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in 2018. So we can't even really point to all the things that have happened before that point and, and say suddenly this is BRI. Um, so it's really, it's uh, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Kenya, Egypt are the big BRI countries. Those are the ones that have been, had big projects for, for, since 2013. So I think um, it, it's, so the African Union is not really doing the negotiating. So it's country by country. Um, and in terms of the use of Chinese workers, I think in, in most instances, um, it's, it's actually cost effective for Chinese companies uh, to use local workers, because when they bring people from China, they have to, of course, pay for their airfare, they have to house them, they have to feed them, they have to provide supplemental um, uh, salaries to them, and then, and they're not cheap. Um, Chinese workers are, are more and more expensive in China, so bringing them to Africa is, is quite an investment. So we find that companies that come over for the very first time uh, who've never worked in Africa, they, are, they tend to be the ones that bring in more Chinese workers and they bring in their crews from China. But then once they get used to it, and once they've set up their businesses in the country, they then uh, are able to develop relationships with African uh, workers that they, they know and trust and uh, they know their work. Um, but it's very true, as Ambassador Fraser pointed out, that the management staff uh, still tends to be, except for the HR director, who's usually African, <laughs> the management staff is Chinese. And I think part of that is, is the language issue. And it's also a trust issue. Um, but, you know, if you have a Chinese company, they're going to be doing their main discussions um, in Chinese. You know, so that's going to be they're going back to their head office and all of those communications and all that are going to be in Chinese. So you really, to have a top-level person in the company, they're going to have to be fluent uh, in Chinese. And uh, so that would be the, the thing to be looking for. To what extent are they, um, is that supply and demand matching where you have Africans who, who now are fluent in Chinese? And we have a lot um, because of all the ones that are studying at the university level in China, which is um, 
you know, tens of thousands at this point. Are we seeing are we seeing evidence of them returning to Africa and working with Chinese companies in Africa? I have been wanting someone to do that research for a long time. And there is one person who's doing this for a PhD dissertation, but I'm not sure how far they've gotten um, given the, especially if no one's able to do field work at this point. But right. uh, that's the kind of- you, Were you gonna add something about yeah, that? Yeah, no, I was, just, I was just going to, I was gonna say there's, I think there's more Chinese students, I mean, more African students now going to universities in China than in uh, the West. Um, and I mean the West, not just the US, but the West. I believe that, I believe I've seen that, uh, that figure. We'll have to look it up, but I'm pretty sure I've seen that figure. It's certainly uh, bigger than the United States. I, I think yeah. France is still very big, so that might be, you know, to see how many Africans, if you include North Africa also, how many are studying in France. That's true, true, very true. Yeah, the other thing I was just gonna say on, it's, it's I, I, I agree with Deborah. it's not really the AU that's doing that negotiation. Um, I would say maybe even 10 years ago to maybe five to 10 years ago would have been what, 20, 2010. Uh, so I'd say about 10 years ago or so, African countries, particularly like Zambia and others, Kenya included, responded to their own society saying that they needed to have more jobs on those work sites as well. You know, and they started to uh, in, engage diplomatically uh, as well about uh, making sure that the you know Chinese companies are hiring Africans, and so I, it's 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 you know both getting more familiar with the environment, the workplace, and knowing how to recruit and recruit good skilled labor there, but also a sort of a, pl a political pushback by civil society in these countries, um, including workers. One of the interesting things um, relating to the, uh, the Chinese small businesses coming in and being active in the trading sector is the differences that we see country by country on that. And I've uh, always been struck, I've spent a lot of time in Ethiopia and I've, I've been to many other parts of Africa too. But in Ethiopia, you just don't see this. It's very rare to see Chinese um, businesses um, all over the place, the way you do in other countries where there's, there's a Chinese shop on every block and sometimes, you know, many, many of them. Yeah. So the Ethiopians pretty much, we're just not issuing the, these business licenses and, you know, they just don't let it happen. Whereas other parts of Africa, that's not the case. Either the rules aren't followed or the rules aren't there. Yeah. Well, one, one question, and I'll have to go to the last question because we're running out of time. But the second to last question is, Minxing Pei has made an argument that Chinese kind of policy of Chinese investment in Africa has failed, that a lot of it was natural resource related. And in fact, they were trying to secure supplies, which they could have done equally well by simply buying these supplies on the open market. Instead, they've run into all sorts of problems and it hasn't helped with their diplomatic relation with, with, uh, with Africa. You know, that when you invest in a mine, it tends to be, a, it's, it's a tough business. And you run into a lot of problems with workers. And it happens for, a, you know, if you're an American company with a mine in the United States, it happens. Uh, do you agree with that thesis? Real quick, and then I want to go to my final one. Um, I, I disagree. I think that the, um, this, this idea of um, investing in, in the natural resource sector or even not doing the investing of using a, a export commodity to finance a, um, an infrastructure project or to secure a loan for an infrastructure project is a way to 
Um, it, it's actually like a commitment technology. Paul Collier, um, who used to be at Oxford, has been in favor of this. You know, if the contracts are transparent, which, which often they aren't. But what do you see without that? You see um, money coming in from oil, and it's, it's just going into the government coffers and there's, it's not being followed. So, you know, all of the consumers of African oil or copper, they're just sending the money back and there's no, um, it's not tied to anything happening. Um, so what the Chinese model does is to, to take some of that export revenue, future export revenue and use it to repay a specific infrastructure project. And there are huge problems with that, you know, when the prices change. Um, but I think it is an interesting way for a government to commit a government that may have a lot of other demands for that money, but they commit some of it to pay for um, needed infrastructure. It's possible for them to do that. And if you can get a Chinese company to actually develop a new resource, a mine that hasn't been there before, and use the revenues from that mine to pay for infrastructure projects, then that seems to be pretty win-win because um, that's providing new resources uh, that wouldn't even have been there. Um, and getting infrastructure. Whereas other ways of doing it, you just, you invest in the resource, you export it and the money comes back and who knows where it goes. You're gonna go two minutes over with your, um, I've already imposed on your time, but let me allow me to go two minutes over and ask a question which will require much more than one minute from each of you to respond to, but try to keep it to one minute, which is will a new administration make a difference and how should they approach this? U.S. policy in Africa. I'll go first. Ambassador Fraser, go ahead. I think a new administration can make a difference. Um, and, you know, we have two candidates. One is the current administration, which would be a new administration. Um, and we've seen in the past where presidents have neglected Africa in their first term and become far more engaged and interested in their second term. And so whether President Trump is reelected, um, I think that he could now put some focus on Africa, uh, depending on who his cabinet secretaries are. I think that um, uh, Secretary Pompeo has an interest in Africa. I know that he has a team that definitely has the depth and interest on the continent. Um, I think that the Department of Defense through AFRICOM, the Africa Command, um, has an interest in Africa. Uh, and so I think that they could, you know, re-gear their policy in a second term to be coherent and constructive um, and much more engaged. And so, yes, for sure, I think so. And then very quickly with President Biden, I think that, you know, the, that team that he will be bringing in is one that's been there before, right? These are people from the Obama administration. These are people from the Clinton administration. They know Africa, they've done Africa. They know they've, they've built constructive policies. And I would expect that and that he would definitely, um, it would be very easy. They, they have the experience and knowledge and the, the relationships. So it would be very easy for them to start quickly uh, on uh, building a constructive Africa policy. It's always possible to change. Uh, and let's hope that uh, no matter who, who is there um, next year, that they do change because change is needed. I want to thank you both for what has been a fabulous panel. This is, I could go on for another six hours. I still have not gotten through half of my questions, but uh, the answers have been incredibly informative. I thank you both so much for giving so generously of your time. Um, it's a subject that really needs more discussion. And please tune in to Deborah's program tomorrow so we can hear in depth 
about how do we do how does that get done Deborah can you tell the audience um, if you go to our, our website which is the China Africa Research Init Initiative um, at Johns Hopkins you should see a link there for registering for the event great but thank you both so much you it was terrific and I'm sure this will also get thousands and thousands of downloads uh, as Deborah's previous programs did and now joined by Ambassador Fraser, it makes it even more compelling. But thanks again. And thank the audience for being patient and allowing me to run now four minutes over time. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. Bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.